the end of January, and uh, she's working down in Reading at a hospital, and I'm here helping Brandon out at the church, and we're just so happy to be home. This is where we feel called, and uh, it's just so awesome to be back. And so we're going through the series in Nehemiah. We're looking at this guy who is a determined servant for God. And we've seen through from the beginning of the book where he's helping Israel to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall to now it's almost this transition of he's working on rebuilding the people of Israel. And in chapters 8 and 9 last week, we discussed the servants' worship and we saw Israel was reading the law like day after day, spending the whole day reading the law and they were recounting the faithfulness of God. As in chapter nine, we saw from Abraham up to their current situation in this really awesome prayer. And this was an impactful moment for them. It's this moment of worship that we saw in chapters eight and nine that had this huge impact on their spiritual lives. And we're gonna see today how that time of worship and prayer changed their hearts in chapter 10. So. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into this. God, I thank you for this morning that we can come together and worship you, that we can just celebrate how great you are, and that you have always been faithful to us. I thank you for your word, and that we can learn from it about ourselves and about you. And I just pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds and our ears are open to your word today that you can speak to us and uh, we can just grow closer to you and what you have to say. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs> so today we are learning about a servant's response. Last week was a servant's worship and now this week is a servant's response to that worship. And so we'll actually, we're actually gonna start towards the end of chapter nine in Nehemiah in verse 32 so we can refresh our minds as to what was going on with the Israelites, how they were feeling about their current circumstances and their relationship with God. So in Nehemiah chapter nine, verse 32, it says, so now our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us, our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the Assyrian kings until today, you are righteous concerning all that has come on us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. So we see that Israel's heart is remorseful. They're broken over the current situation. They're slaves in a land that once was theirs. And not only that, but their relationship with God had been deeply hurt by their lack of faith and lack of desire to follow him. But in that time, God had still 
been faithful to them. In verse 31 of chapter 9, it says, However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. So they're thinking through their past. They're thinking through what got them up to this point. And so what do they do next? They respond. Today is about a servant's response. They respond to God's faithfulness and his love with their own love by living an obedient life. And this takes us to our first point today. A servant's response is devotion to the covenant. Devotion to the covenant. So now we are at verse 38 in chapter 9. We're going to begin and go into chapter 10. And there's going to be a lot of names at the beginning of chapter 10. I'm going to name a couple of them, but we're going to sort of skim through those and then end up towards verses 28 and 29, just so you know what's going on. So in verse 38, chapter 9, it says, In view of all this, in view of all that God has done for us and all that we haven't done, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. Those whose seals were on the document were, first and foremost, Nehemiah the governor. And then following Nehemiah, we see all the names of the priests. And then starting in verse 9, it starts to list the names of the Levites. And then on to verse 14, it lists the leaders of the people. And then skipping down to verse 28, it says the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God. They join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to carefully obey all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of Yahweh our God. See, Nehemiah and the rest of the people who had heard the law of God read to them, they're now taking an oath to follow it. And in this oath, they're saying that we're going to separate ourselves from something and to another thing. Because whenever we separate something, we're leaving that thing behind and we're choosing to cling to something else. And so the thing they're separating themselves from is the surrounding peoples and the idolatry because they're not living in a land that's theirs anymore. They're living in a land filled with Gentiles who worship all these other gods that are not the one true God. And so they're saying we're going to separate ourselves from them because the Israelites were done following the ways of other nations and gods. They saw where that got them and they were, they were done. They were ready to come back to God and lovingly follow him. And so they separate themselves to the law of God. Going back to chapters 8 and 9, when they were reading the law and spending day after day worshiping God and getting into the word, it's possible that Ezra had read this passage from the book in the law in Deuteronomy 29. So if you could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. Um, this is where Moses is renewing the covenant with the Israelites. That, you know, they were supposed to go into the promised land, and then they sort of screwed it up, and they had to spend 40 years wandering around in the desert, and now um, Moses was ready to renew the covenant with them. And so I want you to listen to the similarities that are in this passage in Deuteronomy 29 with what we just read um, in Nehemiah. So, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 10, it says, 
All of you are standing today before the Lord your God. Your leaders, tribes, elders, officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, and the foreigners in your camps who cut your wood and draw your water so that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which he is making with you today, so that you may enter into his oath and so that he may establish you today as his people and he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, Nehemiah and the Israelites were in a situation in which the covenant had obviously been broken by their ancestors. We saw that in chapter 9. They, at one point it says they had flung the law behind their back. So they were done with it. They didn't care about God's law anymore. And so the, um, they're in this situation where they're trying to figure out what is the best thing to do because God had mercifully redeemed them and brought them back out of the exile. And so they felt the best way to respond to God's mercy was to renew this covenant with the remnant that God had brought back from the exile. Because God kept his side of the deal. He never abandoned them. It said he had great compassion and mercy on them. And so they wanted to keep their side by being devoted to the covenant God made with their ancestors. And this was nothing to take lightly either. If you flip um, from Deuteronomy back one book to Numbers chapter 30, it talks about um, what the law says about oaths. In Numbers 30, verse 2, it says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. And so not only did the law declare the severity of making a vow, but the Israelites just spoke of their ancestors uh, failing to keep this covenant in chapter 9. And so they saw the consequences of not keeping it. There wasn't, this wasn't just some willy-nilly like, uh, we should probably follow the covenant again. You know, it's a, it'd be a good idea. But it wasn't that because they understood the consequences of getting into that covenant with God. They meant what they said. And it was all out of this response of God's faithfulness to them. They weren't trying to earn anything. It was all out of this desire to be in relationship with God again. And so where, where does this leave us as Christians today? where we live under this new covenant of grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Do we need to take oaths like the Israelites were doing? I'd say it's unnecessary. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5. He says to simply let our yes be yes and our no be no. Because our oaths aren't what a true relationship with God looks like. Our relationship to the Lord is that of a child to a father. And our Father wants our obedience to be based on love, not trying to make all these promises and earn it for ourselves. Our obedience should be a joyful response to all that he has done for us in Christ. We don't succeed as Christians because we make promises to God, but because we believe the promises of God and act upon them. And by separating themselves to God and to his law and to his covenant and his word, the Israelites are showing they believe in the promises of God and they want to act on them by being set apart from the surrounding peoples. And this takes us to point number two, which is to be set apart as a witness. Point number two is to be set apart as a witness. And we're back in Nehemiah chapter 10. 
uh, in starting in verse 30, it says, We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples, and we will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. So in verse 30, how the Israelites specifically said they were to be set apart, it may sound almost racially superior or racist or culturally arrogant, but this was not the case by any means. It was not because of the race or anything. As the Israelites said in chapter 9, they're now slaves in a nation that's no longer theirs. And so they're living in a society with idolatrous people who want the Israelites to become a part of their society through, you know, the social parts, the religious parts, and the business parts of it. But this goes in direct conflict with following the laws of God. We see the Israelites are wanting to genuinely love the Lord and follow in his ways, and so they're renewing this covenant, and yet they're living in a society where that's like, impossible. Um, and so the Israelites know this is going to be their weak point in faithful, faithfully following God's law. So they're joining together as the people of God to address these specific issues, starting with no intermarriage. And the problem with intermarriage, it doesn't arise from something on the surface. It's not about looks or anything like that, but rather the people who entered into this covenant, they didn't want to marry someone who had not devoted themselves to God. Let's imagine an Israelite does marry a Gentile who doesn't worship God, whether it be out of affection or social status or trying to climb the business ladder. Between the two of them, conflict would start to arise, and it would start to become this constant thing. Because if you're an Israelite, you have this huge list of laws that you're trying to follow day after day, and you have someone else that you're married to day after day, and they're not there with you. Conflict is going to arise in that. And then through this conflict, there's going to end up being the occasional compromise. On the Sabbath day, you're supposed to rest and not do any work. But if you have a Gentile spouse, you're probably going to end up doing some work. They're not going to sit around all day and be like, what are we doing? Um, and that through those occasional compromises, you're going to end up most likely leading to complete conformity. And the Israelite spouse would have abandoned the one true God, all starting with this marriage. So it wasn't wise to intentionally set up a stumbling block to their faith. And it still isn't for us as Christians today. If you could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about this issue of um, believers being with unbelievers. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial, or the devil? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So Paul makes it clear 
in his letter to the church in Corinth, which was in a very similar situation as the Israelites were back then. They were both in societies that were very not for God. They were very idolatrous. And so as believers, we should not be mismatched with those who don't have the same faith as us. It's not about race or anything like that. It simply comes down to faith. But people will argue, you know, well, as, as long as we love each other, it'll work out. It'll, oh, love just, you know, comes over all things. But the question is not whether this marriage will work out, but will this marriage enjoy God's blessing and fulfill God's will? When we're willing to put a human before God, we need to check our hearts and see what we truly worship. God should be number one, and we should desire to follow his will for all of life's issues, including marriage. Marriage should be a joint effort between husband and wife to have God at the center of their relationship so they can best love him and one another and serve as a witness to God. I mentioned earlier that my wife and I, we moved back here, obviously. I'm here today. Um, but before that, we had to talk about it because we were living in Sacramento. Remy was um, in their nursing program there. She had an internship at Kaiser. Everything was going great. Everything was like, if we stayed in Sacramento, it would be the life of success and prosperity. But we had to take time and talk about where does God want us to be? What does God want us to do? And so if we had been, if one of us was an unbeliever and another one was a believer, the whole idea of moving back to Mount Shasta wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been an option because the other person is saying, what? Why would you even consider moving back there? In Sacramento, you can work at Kaiser and make tons of money. You can pursue your career and make huge advances down there. Whereas moving back to Mount Shasta, it's like, oh, okay. Work at the little hospital here in town, you know. It's, it's comfy. It's cozy. So marriage ought to be two believers faithfully following God. Because marriage has a major impact on the course of one's life. So we ought to do the wise thing as the Israelites did and devote ourselves to the Lord by marrying fellow believers so that we can serve as witnesses to God. It's all about being set apart as a witness. And this leads us to the other way in which the Israelites set themselves apart from the surrounding culture, and that was by honoring the Sabbath laws. Observing the Sabbath was solely practiced by the Israelites, and it was a day devoted to rest and contemplation of things spiritual. It was a day to reflect on God and to worship God and say, God, today is a day for you. I'm letting go of control of this day. While on the other hand, the Gentiles around Jerusalem treated the seventh day like any other day. You know, you go out socializing, doing business, exchanging goods, and all that stuff. And so this created a temptation for the Israelite merchants who wanted to get business from the Gentiles. They were arguing that they weren't, work, they weren't doing any work. They were simply just buying some goods from the Gentiles on those days. They didn't want to miss a day of business. So the Israelites, they go out of their way in Nehemiah 10 to address this little loophole in keeping the Sabbath by stating that they won't buy anything on the Sabbath or any holy day. These guys were serious. They wanted to obey the law the way it ought to be obeyed, not as an obligation, but as to why God had set it up in the first place, as a day of rest and to worship God. And they also make a special note to obey the sabbatical year by leaving the fields uncultivated 
in the seventh year, and they will cancel every debt. This is not only setting themselves apart from the surrounding Gentiles, it's serving as a witness that their faith is in God and not their own work. Could you imagine being a farmer? Your livelihood comes from your field. Seventh year comes around, you don't touch it. You just leave it. You would have to have food for two years. You'd have to make it through that entire year without your field. And to let go of a debt every seven years, tremendous faith would be needed. The Israelites were genuinely desiring to follow God because God never gave up on them. God truly loved them. So the Israelites' desire to specifically focus on these two areas of life shows their devotion to faithfully following God in his way rather than the way of the world, rather than the way of the society that they were in. It was a genuine response out of the love God had shown them to be set apart as a witness. And this leads us to our final point. Point number three, support the ministry. Support the ministry. We're going to read verses 32 through 39 in Nehemiah chapter 10. And before we read, though, I want you to notice how each verse references the house of God, the house of the Lord, the Lord's house, God's house. Every verse in this section communicates that the Israelites are committed to supporting the work of the ministry at the temple. So let's read it. We will impose the following commands on ourselves. To give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of God, of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral houses at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We will bring the first fruits of our land of every fruit tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as prescribed by the law and will bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. We will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests at the storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings, of every fruit tree, and of the new wine and oil. A tenth of our land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in all our agricultural towns. A priest of Aaronic descent must accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth, and the Levites must take a tenth of this offering to the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. For the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the priests who minister are, along with the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. See, God said he would dwell in the temple among his people. But in order to enjoy God and not be struck down by his holiness and their overwhelming sin and our overwhelming sin, they needed to sustain the ministry of the temple through sacrifices and offerings. And look at how they wanted to address the law in regards to giving and sacrifices. They go into such 
detail here. They could have just simply said, yeah, we need to tithe and we need to do our offerings and sacrifices. We will not neglect the house of our God. Da, 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 da. No, they go into detail. They want to nail everything down because they want to do it the right way. They were joyful and generous givers, responding to God's generous mercy shown to them. Today, as Christians, there's no physical temple in Jerusalem that we're obligated to support financially. We're not under that covenant, right? But the New Testament does say we should support the work of the ministry. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it out of my notes. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, Now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save, in keeping with how he prospers, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. And he also says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul makes it clear, we're we're to support the work of the ministry of the church. We need to support the ministry of the gospel. Even though we aren't given specifics like tithes and these offerings and the eighth of an ounce of silver like they were in the Old Testament, We are to do it not out of compulsion or reluctance, but we're called to do it out of joy and cheer, for God is good. That needs to be our motivation behind giving. It's not an obligation. It's not a duty. It's out of the joy of God in our own lives. One commentator put it this way, and this this hit me hard. It says, if people under Old Testament law could bring three tithes, how much more ought we to give today who live under the new covenant of God's abundant grace. Talk about getting our perspective right. See, when we focus on God's grace and how he has allowed us to be stewards of his wealth, it's not our wealth, it's his wealth, it changes our perspective and it loosens our grip on what we thought was ours. We start asking questions like, how much of God's money should I keep rather than how much of my money should I give? And we ultimately desire to be wise with what God has given us and how we spend it. By supporting the ministry of the church today, we're declaring that God is Lord over our money. We put our trust in him and not our wealth. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if giving is ever challenging, and I know in my life it, it comes up, That is the moment in which we ought to check our hearts and see where our heart truly is. Because I think we all want to so genuinely love the Lord as the Israelites did, that generous giving will be a normal and joyful part of our lives. So, we've now seen how the Israelites responded to God's faithfulness and mercy. Nehemiah being a determined servant has helped the Israelites joyfully return to the Lord and devote to following his ways. They have renewed the covenant and chosen to specifically address areas in which their current circumstances could easily run into problems with following the laws of God. They wanted to lovingly obey God as a response to God's loving commitment to them. They weren't trying to earn anything from him. They didn't want to respond as their ancestors had 
and rebel against their faithful God. These people wanted God's will for their lives and for their entire lives, day in and day out, at home and at worship, on their farms, in trading and business, in their social lives and spiritual obligations. And so I think this begs the question, how are we responding to God in our lives? Are we responding out of joyful obedience as the Israelites were? Do we really want Jesus as Lord of our relationships, our calendars, and our possessions? Or maybe it, maybe it honestly feels like an obligation. It's a duty. It, it's not this joyful choice that the Israelites were experiencing. Or maybe you're responding the way like the Israelites' ancestors did and want nothing to do with God. I, I was once that way. I didn't put my faith in Christ until I was a junior in high school, and before that, I wanted nothing to do with God. I didn't think there was a God. That was until God knocked me over with his love for me. So, wherever we're at today, I want to encourage you to evaluate your heart in your relationship with God. Is it trying to earn something? Is it an obligation? Or is it a genuine response to his love for you? We've seen through the history of the Israelites to Jesus and now present day that God is faithful. He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. He loves his creation. He sacrificed himself for us and wants what's best for us. But he's not going to force himself upon us. He let the Israelites rebel, and the same goes for us today. But life apart from God, as we have seen from the Israelites' past, is no fun. It's not the way life ought to be. So I encourage you, reflect on God and his faithfulness in your life. He loves us more than we can ever imagine. And it's that fact and that fact alone that should drive us to respond lovingly by lovingly following him and devoting our lives to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and just how we can come together and learn about you and your faithfulness time and time again. We can see that you are merciful and compassionate and that you desire relationship with us. Lord, I pray for our hearts. I pray that they're truly responding to you out of what you have done for us. That it's your love that drives us to you so that we can have a, a relationship with you like that of a child to a father. God, I thank you for today and I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we can be in relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we can seek you and we can lovingly devote our lives to following you because of what you've done for us. In your name we pray, amen. So this is our opportunity to respond. If you want to worship, I encourage you to worship. Dane's gonna play us a song. If you wanna pray where you're at, pray where you're at. And if you wanna come up and pray with me, I'd love to pray with you. So let's worship him together. Stand up.